The Green Revolution radically changed agriculture. The introduction of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, high yield crops, and irrigation in the 1960s doubled global food production by the 90s. The man who's known as the father of the Green Revolution received the Nobel Prize for his work in the 1970. Soil scientist Dr. Christine Nichols believes we now need a revolution of a different color. A revolution that works with the soil and its natural abilities to defend crops, enhance ecosystem services, help tackle climate change, and produce nutritious food. I'm Derek Leahy, and welcome to the Brown Revolution. On June 20th, 2019, so just two weeks ago, the Breton Plots held a field day for its 90th anniversary. The Breton Plots is a research site run by the University of Alberta studying crop production in gray, and this is a really hard one to pronounce, luvasolic soil, one of the types of soil we have in forested landscapes here in Alberta and Canada as well. We partnered with the Plots for the event. I was there and it turned out to be a really great day despite the rain. In the morning, we had about 90 people meet at the community hall in Breton and we listened to two soil scientists present, and one of them was Dr. Christine Nichols. Now, Dr. Nichols is working with Food Water Wellness Foundation right now, and you might recognize the name of that foundation. Anytime we've done a soil carbon sequestration episode, I usually have a co-host, that's Kimberly Cornish, who's the executive director of Food Water Wellness Foundation. Her and Dr. Nichols spent a good chunk of June traveling around northern Alberta doing soil health workshops. And the workshop at Breton Plots was actually the last one on the tour. With Dr. Nichols being a soil scientist or a soil microbiologist, if I'm being a bit more accurate here, I kind of expected the usual soil carbon presentation from her. You know, plants through photosynthesis, they draw in carbon, push it down below ground through their roots where hungry little microbes feast on that carbon. Good for soil health, good for the climate, and that would not have been a bad presentation either. What I had not expected was Dr. Christine Nichols to go up there, stand up at the podium and call for a revolution. The Brown Revolution is what she calls it, which is really a soil revolution. Well, you know what, maybe it's better to think of it as soil revitalization because what she's promoting is and has been in the soil way before we ever got here. It's just been neglected by us because of those advances we made during the Green Revolution with those fertilizers, with those pesticides, with those high yield crops. And, you know, a lot of it, we just weren't aware of its existence. We still have so much to learn about all those tiny soil microbes living in the soil. To make a long story short, I love Dr. Nichols' presentation that day. I guess I'm a sucker for a good call for a revolution. I'll admit the presentation probably did rock the boat a bit, and she definitely said some things that went against agriculture as a lot of us know it in Alberta. Whether you call that type of agriculture conventional agriculture or traditional agriculture. But there are some valuable lessons in what Dr. Nichols has to say. 
and she made some damn good points that we need to treat the soil the same way we treat ourselves, that we limit ourselves when we say we can't do much because of the short growing season here, and that yields may not be the best measurement for a profitable farm or ranch. Because I liked your presentation so much, I'm not going to jump in or interrupt or anything like that with my own commentary. We're just going to let the presentation play out so you can really get the full effect. But before we get going on that, uh, just a little bit of background on Dr. Christine Nichols. Dr. Nichols was the chief scientist for the Rodell Institute up until last year. The Rodell Institute's based in Pennsylvania, and it's a big organic agriculture institute. She also worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture for about a decade. Right now, she's a consultant, and Kimberly Cornish and Food and Water Wellness Foundation are working pretty hard to bring her up here to Alberta and have her work in here permanently. Well, I guess as long as she wants to stay here permanently. But if you listen to her presentation, you'll notice she really wants to stay. All right, go pop some popcorn, get your favorite drink ready. It's time for the Brown Revolution with Dr. Christine Nichols. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very happy to be here and want to thank the uh, University of Alberta uh, for allowing me to be here as well as Rural Routes to Climate Solutions that helped to support my trip here from the U.S. to Canada and the uh, grant that Food Water Wellness Foundation and received from the Community Environmental Program through the um, Community Environmental Action Program through the Ministry of Environment. So I really want to acknowledge the, the support that has allowed me to come to Alberta. This is one of seven. So this is the last of the seven workshops that we've been doing throughout the province. I was up in the um, Peace Country earlier last week and throughout Central Alberta here this week. And so it's been very exciting for me to be around here and be able to talk with farmers and ranchers. Uh, at my, my background is in soils and soil microbiology. I've studied mycorrhizal fungi for most of my career. I have an undergraduate degree from the University of Minnesota and a master's degree from West Virginia University in environmental microbiology and a doctorate from the University of Maryland in soil science. So I, there wasn't a program in soil microbiology, so I sort of mashed them together and consider myself to be a soil microbiologist um, by putting my master's and, and my, my doctorate together. But really, some of the best education that I have received in my life has been able to work with farmers and ranchers uh, throughout the Great Plains uh, and in the Canadian prairies as well. And the lessons that I learn in looking at how the biological system functions within the chemical and physical and geological system that we have in our soils. So being able to unite those factors together as we're looking at how the system functions. And so that's really where it is that I focus in looking at regenerative agriculture and what it is that we can do. A lot of the things that I look at are what are some of the options that we can have and how is it that we can expand what we've done and where we've gone? How can we get the systems functioning at a higher level of efficiencies and at a higher level of activity than they have functioned in the past. So it's really being able to help to motivate things forward. 
And so what I like to start off with is, you know, kind of talking about soil health. This is the accepted definition of soil health. I've highlighted there the word, the word function because function is really what it is that we're looking at. Again, how can we maximize the efficiencies of various types of functions? Looking at how water is going to be moving through the system, looking at how nutrients are going to be moving through the system. But it really is taking this systems approach, the system idea of every layer within the ecosystem. So you're looking at the microscopic, the macroscopic, the plants, the animals, both macroscopic and microscopic, fungi, bacteria, nematodes, protozoa, all of these things together, along with the system of the soil matrix itself. So when we think about, you know, the five soil forming factors that we have, uh, you have parrot material, which is sort of your sand, silt, and clay. You have uh, time, you have topography, the uh, land formations, you have climate, and I think most importantly, we have biology. And so what we're trying to do in regenerating these systems is, yes, you know, we may not be able to change much about the first four soil forming factors, but we really can help to energize that biological component. And that's what I was able to see in looking at the biology that was there and the microbiology and then seeing how farmers and ranchers could actually help to actualize and energize that type of a system. And when we do that, we're really able to help to build up resilience because we're actually working with systems, with microorganisms in particular, that have been around for hundreds of millions of millennia. The mycorrhizal fungi are about 400 to 500 million years old, and they were the organisms that actually helped to create soil. Soil is organic. It's not the mineral matrix. It's not the parent material. You can have the first four soil-forming factors, but if you don't have organic matter, you have dirt and not soil. Soil is that carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And so as we look at soil actually being created or evolved over time, it was that intersection between the microbiology, especially the mycorrhizal fungi, and how they worked with the original um, photosynthesizers, a cyanobacterium that you had in that environment, and how they united in order to begin to build up organic matter on the land that we had. And so as we look at tapping into those activities of the organisms that are in the soil, again, they've been around for hundreds of millions of years. They've figured out multiple ways in which to build up ways to maintain the functions that we're looking for from the soil. And so that helps with the resilience because no matter what types of conditions they're exposed to, there are organisms that can actually begin to play a role and to begin to maintain those functions. And in addition to building up resilience, that can help to build up resistance within the system. So that is, we're seeing shifts and changes in getting uh, climatic shifts and changes. We're starting to see new pests and diseases come into the system. And again, having that resilience that is there is going to help us to resist some of the, the long-term impacts of those types of new pests and diseases. In addition, this uh, relationship between the soil biology and the soil microbiology and our own 
gut microbiology or the gut microbiology in all animals is really essential to how we can improve the nutritive quality of our food. Uh, we've seen a drastic decline in the nutritive quality of our food over time because of the practices that we've put into place and in how we're growing our food. But if we go back to looking at how we can efficiently utilize the soil biology and unite the microbiology in the soil with the concepts of the microbiology of how food gets processed by our gut microbiology, we're really going to be able to look at how we can tap into a higher level of nutritive quality. Um, in addition to that, it is, for me, the biggest bottom line. I come from uh, a farming family, multi-generation multi farming family that uh, came over from Ireland and Germany. And um, when I am speaking with farmers and ranchers, it's incredibly important to talk about overall profitability. This isn't about yield. The one thing that I think we should eliminate from agriculture, the one word I would love to see eliminated from agriculture is the Y word. We're not going to talk about the Y word anymore because the Y word is not what you take to the bank. The bank doesn't care how much grain you have. The bank doesn't care how many pounds you put on your animals. The bank really, really, really doesn't care. The bank cares what you put in and how much you take out, how many checks you write and how big a checks you're writing. That's what makes the biggest difference in your bank account. And so when we're looking at overall profitability, it is figuring out ways in which, again, we can work with the system to reduce the number and size of the checks you write. I want to redistribute risk across the activities of these billions of organisms in the soil. If you have, how many of you have animals on your farm? Okay. All of you have animals on your farm. Billions of them. Billions of them. And we don't tap into and actualize what those organisms can do. And that is how we're going to redistribute the risk. Farming is a risky business. Why don't you redistribute the risk and get better profitability by doing that across billions of organisms instead of focusing on the few that you bring on to your farmscape? So that's really what it has been kind of my focus. And again, following up on some of the things that Dr. Ellert talked about in looking at photosynthesis and looking at carbon. And what this is, is this is your money. This is your economics. Carbon drives everything. It is provides the building blocks and the energy for the reactions that you want to have in your system. We all worked for food. We've just now replaced that in a concept because we have funny colored paper and coins. But we all elementally worked for food. Every organism is working for food. And so what we need to do is tap into the fact that we can get more food production into the system, getting more photosynthesis, firing up the system and being able to take the energy from the sun and lock it up via photosynthesis in the bonds between carbon atoms and other atoms or between carbon atoms and carbon atoms. So those bonds hold that energy from the sun and drive all of the other reactions. 
So why is it that we tell ourselves that we are limited by various types of things? One of my biggest frustrations, I learned a lot from farmers and ranchers in North Dakota. I was raised in Minnesota. I went to the East Coast for a brief period of time for graduate school. I came back to um, the Northern Great Plains and I was in North Dakota. And one of my biggest frustrations in working with farmers and ranchers is they tell me that their growing season is too short, that they're limited. The minute you put constraints on yourself, you're never going to go anywhere. You're limited. If you tell yourself you're limited, that's as far as you're going to go. I firmly think that your growing season here, and yes, I am from the United States. I am sorry. <laughs> right now, I am really, really, really desperately sorry. <laughs> but that being true, I do know where I am. Exactly. And being in Alberta, your growing season, the minimum amount of time in which you need to be doing photosynthesis, the minimum amount of time in which you need to be doing photosynthesis is 260 days. That's 105 days off. You have billions of organisms that you need to feed and you're going to take 105 days off? You should be ashamed of yourselves. But I'll give you a little bit of credit because I know where I am. So I'll say 260 days. Because we need to reinvigorate, we need to re-energize our soils and our soil environment. What we focus on oftentimes is issues. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too dry, it's too wet, there's too little fertility in my soils. Every single one of those things is issues. And in agriculture, what we've done is we put band-aids on issues and we expect the system to work. We don't look at what the problem is. The problem, the root of the problem is the root of the solution. We don't have enough carbon in our soils. We don't have enough soil because soil is carbon. We don't have enough of this. If you look, as a microbiologist, when I first saw this diagram and I got really excited and it's like the soil food web and all of these organisms that are in the soil food web and this is so cool to represent this. But the more that I looked at this, the more that I realized that as my eyes are drawn to everything that's in between and how cool and you have all of these organisms and they're all together in this food web, I lost the attention that was most important. I need to focus on the first trophic level on photosynthesis. If photosynthesis doesn't happen, I don't have anything else. It's impossible for the rest of the food web to function without the first trophic level. So what does it matter that I'm all excited about nematodes and fungi and bacteria and protozoa and birds and bats and bees and, and human beings? If I don't have the first thing, it doesn't matter. 105 days is too many days off. Seriously. The organisms in the soil, we can have biological life happening 365 days a year in Alberta. We know that that occurs. We've done research to show that. It's not at peak, of, at peak activity, 
like you would have at other times of the year, but there are still organisms that are growing. And we're starving them because of the way that we have put constraints on ourselves. So one of the things that I've done is think about the soil as being the heart of the system. And that soil is this idea of driving all of these processes, linking the above ground and the below ground. So often we don't think about what's happening below ground because we can't really see it. And we've never really thought about it. So we treat the soil like a bench top. Our issue with colonizing the moon is not that we don't have the technology to do it. We know how to do it. The issue with colonizing the moon is nobody can write a check that big. We're basically making our, the best land on the planet into the moon, the surface of the moon. Yes, we'll have oxygen, but if we don't have soil, you can't write a check that big. None of us can. So we need to change the way it is that we look at it. In the United States, we lose 1.6 billion, with a B, metric tons of topsoil every year. Billion with a B, 1.6 metric tons. What does that mean? It's a number and some words. How do we visualize that? If you were to load all of that soil on rail cars, the length of the train would stretch around the equator nearly seven times. We have some of the best land on the planet and we're letting all of that go away every year. In Canada, it's not that much better. Again, you can't write a check that big. None of us can. So what we need to do is I believe that we need to have a new revolution. Not a new green revolution where we're focused on above ground, but a brown revolution where we're focused on the soil. And how we can do this is doing something that I refer to as eco-functional intensification. We need to look at our landscape, at our farmscape, and look at how we can utilize every inch, every centimeter on that farmscape to its greatest efficiency. You've got tree rows, use them. Not just to break wind, but to attract pollinators, to help to manage other animals that may come into the system, to attract bats and birds utilizing your landscape. You've got an area of your field where water frequently puddles on, you know, every three years out of five. You don't get a lot of productivity out of that. Why are you keeping tilling that up and putting that into and planting seed there and spending money and writing checks? You can convert that land into something, again, that could attract Insects and birds and bats and bees and other animals that are going to provide function 
to your farmscape. It's looking at how we can optimize the use of the land that we have. Because again, we're shipping a lot of it away. In the U.S., the Gulf of Mexico really doesn't need any more soil. Really doesn't need any more. What we want to do is we want to maximize the efficiencies of the processes of the organisms that have been in the soil and created soil to begin with. If you want to know how to get soil to function at its optimum efficiency, wouldn't you want to use, tap into using the organisms that actually made it? Don't you think that they would know how to use it most efficiently? So what we want to do is really combine this idea. And part of it also is looking at intensifying the system. This is not about getting less. This is about getting more for the from the system, but it's not about doing more. It's about doing things that are going to maximize the efficiency. Intensification doesn't mean that I need you to work harder. I need you to work smarter. I need you to figure out how it is that we can optimize the use of the landscape and take cues from nature and natural systems, but don't apply them directly in the same way that a natural system is applied. We are all, by nature, every biological organism is pre-programmed to be lazy. Every single one of us wants to kick back on the couch and have somebody bring us food. <laughs> it's true. Every single organism. We are pre-programmed to be lazy. As a scientist, I got a fancy way of referring to this instead of lazy. It's called conservation of resources. <laughs> conservation of resources means that I want to do the least amount of work I want to be most efficient, the least amount of work for the greatest amount of reward. So what we want to do in our systems is, again, take cues from nature, but natural systems function at a low, moderate level. They're lazy until a stress event occurs. When you have a stress event, then they pick up in activity and efficiency. The buffalo came through and grazed. You pick up for a little while, and then you go back to sleep. Fire came through. You picked up. Insects came through. You picked up. All of these things were the things that evolved the soil, the events that created the soil over time. We have the opportunity in our agroecosystems to think about that and accelerate that process. Instead of it taking tens of thousands of years to form the prairies and the forests, we're going to change our system in a couple of decades. In our lifetime, we have the opportunity to, again, tap into and accelerate and intensify what it is that we can do. But if we tell ourselves that these are our constraints, we're not going to do that putting different options into what we can do. So working with information that's come from organizations like the Soil Health Institute and other organizations where they've come up with a list of principles to soil health, 
I've sort of taken those principles to soil health and I've put them, I've taken, some of them have four of them, some of them have five and some of them have six principles. They vary a little bit, but they're all about the same. And I took those principles and I put them into this pyramid design. And I've done this intentionally. In this pyramid design, naturally our eyes go to the top and to the bottom. So the thing at the top is the most important thing and the thing at the bottom is the next most important thing because that's the way we think. The pyramids, the reason I talk about it is a pyramid design instead of having a cake or something else that's a layered cake, the pyramid design is intentional because pyramids have stood for thousands of years. And the reason they stood for thousands of years is because every layer in the pyramid was important. Everything played a role. They were all integrated and interlocked. The roles, the layer above put pressure on the layer below. The layer below helped to provide a foundation. Everything was important. So this is not hierarchy. This is integration. <coughs> In addition, not just because of the fact that they've stood for thousands of years and thinking about that in how they're formed, but I want you all to celebrate the millennial farm celebration. Each of you not to have a century farm, but a millennial farm. To stand on your land for thousands of years. Not to have it where civilizations that are thousands of years old have had to move from one landscape to another landscape to another landscape because of the way that we mismanage the soil. We have the opportunity to take the knowledge that we have today, experiments that have been done in places like the Breton Plots, the knowledge that we're coming up with to be able to say, how can we move this forward? Where is it that we can go? I was raised on a farm and farming is a frustrating business. My dad's looking for an exit strategy and he knows not to look here. <laughs> because it's, it's tough. But what we're looking for in this, and part of the reason that farming and ranching is as difficult as it is, is for the most part, it's a business that's not designed around thinking about 10 years in the future. It's a business that's designed around thinking about from season to season. <clears throat> your only future plan is that you hope that you can hold on to the land long enough to give it to your offspring. That's not a future business plan. That's not thinking about what the industry is going to look like in the future. We started this morning, there was a discussion on food. And what we're looking for, not just for feeding people, but again, feeding people things that are going to allow them to be healthy. I come from the United States. I'm really working hard on becoming Canadian. And part of the reason I'm working hard on becoming Canadian, and I'm telling you, you guys really need to build a wall. <laughs> because here's the deal. We're going to come, and we're going to come fast, and all at once. Because in the United States, as someone from the United States, I am an obese, malnourished human being. 
and I pay at least 30% of my income after taxes and after part of my income is withdrawn by my employer, I still pay another 30% of my income on out-of-pocket healthcare costs. 67% of my population is one minor healthcare issue. This is not cancer. This is not a car accident. This is not a heart attack. This is somebody breaking their arm, minor healthcare issue away from bankruptcy. Again, you better build that wall because we're going to come. 67% of our population is heading this way pretty quick. Many of us are already heading this way to buy insulin and other medications. This is the reality of who we are. Because in a first world country where I am an obese, malnourished human being, for the first time in our history, four years running, our life expectancy is going down rather than up. Our life expectancy is dropping. I have a grandnephew who was born last December and a grandniece. His sister is about a year and a half older than he is. And not just because of their gender, she will outlive, she will outlive him because our life expectancy is going down. This is not an acceptable thing. And we have the opportunity to change this. And at the same time, to put carbon below ground and maximizing the efficiencies and utilizing the resources of the organisms that are in the soil environment. So what do we need to do? The bottom layer there talks about living roots, keeping things green and growing. Your growing season is 260 days. And you're all going to go home and you're going to be like, yeah, she told me this stuff. <laughs> it can't work here. She doesn't know everything that I'm up against. It's just not going to work. Can't be done. She said she knew where she was, but she obviously had no idea. <laughs> Seriously, I don't know what's wrong with her. It was a good idea, and I was excited about it at the meeting, but here now when I'm looking at my farm, nah. <clears throat> what we do is we choose the wrong things. Again, we confine ourselves to things because we make the wrong choices. I was in the UK a few years back. And when I was in the UK, they asked me when it was going to be as a scientist where they could grow corn in the UK. And my response to them was, are you high? Why would you, do you know what latitude you're at? Corn was originally a perennial tropical grass. Tropical grass. And you want to grow it in the UK? You want to grow it in Canada? Why? It's actually not that good of a grass. Soybeans are really bad legumes. But in the United States, I mean, from a legume standpoint, physiologically, soybeans suck. Excuse my language, but it's true. They're not efficient. Corn is also not efficient for the most part. That's, it's not what we want to do. In the United States, on some of the best land on the planet, our two major crops are industrial products and low-quality feed. 
and we're shipping 1.6 billion metric tons of topsoil away. This is going to feed the planet and feed the planet healthy stuff? It's not. So what we have is the option to look at other things that we can have growing in the system. Looking at how we can increase the productivity of the system and be putting carbon below ground. Increasing the number of photosynthesizers that you have. Capturing the energy of the sun. This isn't about always growing something that you can harvest as a cash crop. But growing something that is going to provide for the benefits of the system that is going to make you more profitable because it can overall reduce the number of checks and the size of checks that you need to write. Keeping something living and growing is also, if you want to know what to grow in your environment, sometimes it's going back and looking historically at what has been grown. Look at the records that are at Lethbridge, not just at the experiments that were done there, but also at what people were growing in that environment. What some of the first colonizers grew, first Canadians grew, what some of the indigenous populations grew. Those types of plants, maybe that's not the best cash crop, but that can be something that can be green and growing and putting carbon below ground and enhancing the system. It could be something that you could use to feed your livestock. Not just the livestock that you bring onto the farm, but the livestock, the billions of them that you have already on your farm. This is what it is that we're trying to do. And as we address, again, for the pyramid design, as we address and think about keeping something green and growing, that's going to automatically feed into diversity. Because canola, wheat, snow, snow, Wheat, snow, canola, whatever your rotation is, is not diversity. Corn, soybeans is not diversity. Corn, 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 soybeans, corn, 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 is not diversity. If we look at optimizing our landscape and what it is that we can put in there, we now can get a greater level of plant diversity which automatically is going to give us a greater level of animal diversity and microscopic diversity, bacterial and fungal, fungal diversity, all of these different types of things that we can have in the system. Reducing or no synthetic inputs. So we talked about, um, there was, you know, looking at some of the graphs that you had in discussion of fertility and the difference that fertility can make. Fertility makes a difference. But why does that fertility have to come from a check that you write? Why can't that fertility come from the system? Why can't that fertility come from what the organisms in the soil can help to provide? We live on some of the best land in the planet that contains the nutrients that the plants need to be able to grow. They're not all in the available form. They're not all in the available form at the right times, but they can be put into the available forms at the right times so that the plants can be able to utilize those nutrients. But instead, we're going to write a big check 
and we're going to add those nutrients. And because of the equipment that we have and because of the way the system is, we're basically going to write a big check and buy those nutrients and we're going to add them to the soil, which is like adding them to the surface of the moon at this point in time. We're going to add them to the soil. They're going to be in a, in a plant available form. But the plant is really, you know, it's a seed sometimes. Sometimes we haven't even planted it yet. There's no seed in the ground when we add some of it. We add some of it when it's a seed. And so we put all of that stuff that the plant needs to grow to reach a yield goal, to get to this, this level of production. We calculate it out. We do the math. It works fine. Chemistry is great. It all works great. We got it all figured out. This is basically like us looking at our newborn baby and saying, hmm, I can roughly calculate out how much food it's going to take to raise that baby to be 18 years old. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to buy all of that food and I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it in the nursery with the baby and I'm going to come back 18 years later and it's going to be a productive member of society. And you laugh and you scoff, but this is how we treat our cropping systems when it comes to fertility plants. So we got a little bit smarter and we changed it up a little bit and we decided, you know, what we could do is spread this out a little bit. And so we're going to come back instead of putting it all around the baby when it's a newborn, we'll come back when it's a year old and we'll come back when it's five. And maybe we'll be able to come back when it's 10, but after it's 10, we can't get in there anymore. So there's at least eight years when it's on its own. It's still not going to be a productive member of society. It can't happen. No matter what kind of math you do, it's not going to be a thing that's going to work out well. And you wrote a big, huge check to do this. The issue with the synthetic inputs is they outsource the job of the biology. If your job directly or indirectly is to get food directly or indirectly from the plant by providing the plant with something from the soil, some nutrient or water or pest prevention or something like that, if that's your job and somebody writes a check and provides that to the plant for free to the plant, it's free to the plant, why would the plant pay carbon to the biology to do that? It doesn't. You don't pay for something that somebody gave you for free. Nobody does. So we outsource the jobs of the biology, of the most efficient organisms that have figured out how to do this for hundreds of millions of years. I'm not going to argue that they don't need fertility, but what kind of fertility do we need? Dr. William Albrecht did some studies at the University of Missouri down in the 1950s, and his study basically showed that in a fertilized field, it took about five times the amount of water that it took in an unfertilized field to grow 79 bushels of corn versus 18 bushels of corn. Again, this was the 1950s, so I know those yields are fairly low. But 79 versus 18 and five times the amount of water because it was fertilized. It's what fertilizer companies have used since then to sell us synthetic fertilizer. Since then, we have also known 
that it has always been the case that the nutrient use efficiency, the nitrogen use efficiency, is about 50% or less. What you add, 50% or less of it gets into your crop plant. Phosphorus use efficiency is about 30% or less. Since 1960, our nitrogen use efficiency has gone down rather than up. It takes more nitrogen fertilizer today to grow a bushel of grain than it took in 1960. And it is because we have outsourced the job of the microbiology. And when we do that, in addition, they need, the plants need more water. Because what Dr. Albrecht said was, is this water stress or nutrient stress? The reason he wasn't getting the yields and the water concentration was the difference was it water stress or nutrient stress? For the nutrients to move in the soil into the plant roots, it isn't beaming technology. This isn't Star Trek. The plant doesn't sit here and say, Phosphorus, come on in. The nutrients are dissolved in water and they have to move to the plant roots. In order for diffusion to work, for that to happen, when the plant has its highest nutrient demand is when the plant goes through the reproductive phase. Reproduction takes a lot of work. We added fertility way before the reproductive phase. And the climate is not helping us because we had spring rains and we have fall rains, but we don't have a whole lot in the middle of summer when the plant's in the reproductive phase. So the soils are driest, the fertility is the least, and the plant is starving. If it doesn't have the biology to help it go out into the soil and get those nutrients to make those nutrients bioavailable, and the fungal hyphae act as the pipeline to shovel those nutrients back into the roots, the plant has to give off water through its roots to try and create a diffusion gradient to get the nutrients to move and flow into the roots. It's hot and dry, and you're starving. But it's the only solution you have. So what happens to our yield? How is it that we can manage it? So we want to reduce the amount of synthetic inputs. We want to manage livestock in the system. And managing livestock in the system isn't just about having the animals that you put onto the landscape. It is about the microorganisms, the birds, the bats, the bees. It's all of those organisms that are contributing to how the plant is going to function and providing benefits to the system. We want to make sure that we are going to protect the surface of our soil, putting the soil armor on, either in the form of residue or better yet, in the form of a living plant. It is estimated that the energy of raindrops impacting an acre of land is equivalent to about 20 tons of TNT. These are explosive forces hitting the surface of the soil. Those explosive forces are going to allow for the soil in the United States to go down the Mississippi and the Missouri and end up in the Gulf of Mexico. Again, it doesn't need any more. 
If we can diffuse that energy through residue or living plant material, we don't have the explosive forces. We can't stop rain. We don't want to stop rain. But we need to figure out how to utilize it. It's all in figuring out, maximizing the efficiencies, utilizing the tools. Reducing the amount of disturbance to the soil, reducing tillage, making sure that we're going to be able to keep the soil in place. And one last thing, because the pyramid, and sometimes six principles in the pyramid, what was, what was, what was number three? What was number four? Was, the other thing, an easier way to think about this is treat the soil like we're supposed to treat ourselves, to be healthy organisms. First, feeding. 105 days is way too long of a vacation. In a wheat system, in a continuous wheat system, one of the things that bugged me when I first went to North Dakota was they were growing wheat. Wheat is putting carbon below ground. Allocation happens when the plant is in the vegetative growth phase. You're looking at about five weeks out of the year. Five weeks of food out of 52. In a wheat fallow system, it's five weeks of food out of 104. Would you be happy? Would you store carbon? It can't be done. So we need to eat throughout the day. We need to eat a very diverse diet. We need to exercise. We need to stress our system some. We can't put everything in a bubble. The more we put it in a bubble, the more we protect it, the less it is going to perform at peak efficiencies. That's adding those synthetic inputs. And we need to protect it, putting the armor on the soil surface. So with that, I want to end here with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. I think this is, is very poignant. It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. This is an integrated system. I added that. But we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one destiny affects all indirectly. It's a system that we're looking at. Thank you. I know that we're on a tight schedule, but it would be so great to have a few questions uh, for Dr. Nichols. Uh, are there some? Oh, come on. Questions, comments, criticism. She, I love criticism. She couldn't have so come please. all the way from Maryland. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, at least one. Here we go. Uh, just a comment about, you know, it's fine to say that the microbes can do all the work to keep the system sustainable, but we export a lot out of the soil. And isn't our big problem is we don't recycle. It goes to the cities, it ends up in the ocean or in the air. Any comments on that? Okay, so the, the question is, is, and if I can sort of, redo this really quickly because this is frequently the way that I hear it is aren't we mining stuff out of our soil and we're going to lose fertility and the microbes can only compensate for so much. Yes. Um, and so there's, there's two ways of looking at this uh, in, in two ways in which this can be addressed. One is again, we live in incredibly, we have incredibly rich soils. And so mining these soils will take an incredibly long time. And in that time, we also do need to begin to utilize more of putting, again, integrating things like grazing operations, integrating animals more into the operation, 
And again, whether that's animals that you're bringing on, I mean, integrating grazing would be great, but if you don't want to bring animals on, looking and working with wildlife and getting more birds and bats and bees and insects, everybody poops and everybody dies and leaves nutrients behind in both. And you also brought up what goes into our air and what goes into our water. We're constantly, it is about cycling, but we're also constantly cycling and bringing things back in through our atmosphere. There's a lot of nutrients in our air. There's a lot of nutrients in our water and we can cycle all of that back in. Yes, we may, again, also need to start, as we look at some of our agroecosystems, start applying a lot more waste to our agroecosystems, certainly. But focusing again on we're going to mine them and we're going to lose, I don't think is the right perspective to take because there's a lot more that we can get. And the more that we put plants on there and get them growing and keep them on there for the soil, the more that we're cycling nutrients through the system. Thanks, Tom, for the question. And thank you for the answer. Last question before lunch. You, you seem to insinuate that it makes sense to grow some crops that can be used for grazing livestock. And yet all over the world people are debating and demanding that people stop eating livestock in order to prevent climate change. Do you want to just repeat the question? Yes. So the, the question is, is that where part of what I'm looking at is stating that integrating grazing and integrating livestock into the operation can be extremely beneficial. But all over the world, as we're looking at issues with climate change, livestock are, are looked upon as one of the major issues with climate change. Yes and yes. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, I don't care if you eat an animal. I don't care if you drink milk. I really don't care. The system's always evolved under animal integration. It's the way that it works. Our biggest issue with animals is how we're currently managing them from a climate change perspective, because we put way too many of them in confinement trying to address the issue of looking at producing that much. If we were to integrate them into the landscape, in the way that they could most efficiently utilize those resources in the landscape and recycle them, you're not going to run into the same level of issues that you would have with confinement. You also, and your the numbers of animals is going to be different, as well as again how how the how what they produce as greenhouse gases from burping is offset by the advantages of what they can gain from grazing, what we can gain from grazing. And what we can gain from grazing, and I know we're running out of time, but it offers me an opportunity to kind of go into this a little bit, how the animal impacts, the reason that they co-evolved and our prairies co-evolved with grazing inputs is how the animal impacts the plant changes the way that the plant allocates carbon below ground and how much carbon gets allocated below ground. The simple way that I think about this is if you have an animal that grazes and it basically tears at a, at a, at a plant, it's not haying. We can't mimic this as well with haying. We can't get the same 
carbon going below ground decaying that we get with grazing. And the question is, is why? Part of it is the animals redepositing manure, but part of it also is what happens physiologically to the plant. Because the plant with grazing, if you tear at a leaf, if you tear at forage, what that does is one that's going to pull at the whole entire plant, including the roots. So you're going to strip off some root hairs. You're going to release some sugars, proteins, and polysaccharides as exudates out of the roots when those root hairs are ripped off. Root hairs are also carbon sources for microorganisms. So all of that is more food, more carbon going below ground. And the response on the part of the plant to that tearing as opposed to haying the wound pattern is different. You have a larger surface area of the plant tissue that's wounded with the tearing than you do with slicing. And I think of this oftentimes, the easiest analogy that I have for this is if you got lost in the woods and you got mauled by a bear and it mauled your arm, you're better off if you don't know when you're going to get rescued to put a tourniquet on and potentially lose your arm because your body can't produce enough resources to cover all of those wounds. What we want to do with managed grazing is leave enough of the plant to do the photosynthesis to help to regrow, but also do the photosynthesis to provide the carbon going below ground so that the plant can get the micronutrients, the molybdenum and copper and nitrogen and phosphorus and sulfur that's needed to make the enzymes to continue to do photosynthesis. That sounds like an ideal segue into lunch where we yes. can start thinking about our own harvesting and grazing. Yes. Round of applause for Dr. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks very much on behalf of the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is a Alberta-based project empowering agriculture producers and rural communities with climate solutions. We're a project of the Stetler Learning Center and we run workshops, field days, host this podcast series, and we also do webinars. We actually got a webinar coming up in July. It's going to be on perennial cereal grains. We don't quite have a date yet. We still need to lock that in with the presenter. But for more details and to register, please go to our website at www.rr2, that is a 2 is a numeric 2, cs.ca. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions had a bit of a growth spurt in the spring and we now have three new team members. We have Angie O'Connor in Wimborne, our Southern Alberta Coordinator, Marie Galanka in Athabasca, our Northern Alberta Coordinator, and Evelyn Tanaka in Calgary, our Solar Lab Coordinator, a brand new project for Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. The advisory committee of Rural Roots is still the same. We're still backed up by Brenda Barrett, who, by the way, created Rural Roots. It wasn't me. Dana Penrice, Mark Fox, and Kimberly Cornish. The podcast is funded by the Government of Alberta and Energy Efficiency Alberta. Today's episode was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. I know I shouldn't be complaining about all this moisture, but it sure would be nice to see the sun again. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.